to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Matt Lynch. If you've ever been to the land of Israel and you've toured around the land with someone who knows it intimately, someone who lives and breathes the material, cultural, and ancient world of the Bible, you know that that's an experience from which you can never really go back. You can't think about the Bible the same way anymore. And today's guest is someone who spent a good deal of time in the land of Israel, knows the material, cultural world of the Old Testament, and thinks really hard about the relationship between Bible and archaeology. And for some of us who work primarily with texts, it can be really helpful to attend to the findings of archaeologists. And I think it's really exciting to do that. So that's what we're going to do today. And I hope you get a feel for some, um, you know, some of the value of hearing from archaeologists who think about the Bible in this episode. Uh, But before we move on, two things real quick. First of all, could I ask you to give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast? That would be very helpful. And second, I did a quick search on Google with the phrase, best ways to communicate news. And I came up with a site entitled 10 Simple Secrets to Totally Rock Your Internal Communications. And I thought, oh my word, where have you been all my life? Then I thought about the title, it's secret. I don't know how it came up on my search because if it's secret, anyhow, somehow I got into this site that um, had all these brilliant insights. Uh, I'm not going to read all 10 because I don't know how much I'm supposed to share. It's secret. Uh, But the first one was integrate video into your internal communication strategy. How cool is that? So here's my my second request then. Could I ask all of you who um, who work somewhere and have access to email that you can email all your colleagues, could I ask you to integrate on-script promoting video into your internal communication strategy? And you might be thinking, what on earth does that mean? To which I say, if you're asking the question, it probably means you're already there. Okay, think about that one while you listen to this episode. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to OnScript. I am here today with Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott. She is Associate Dean of the Faculty of Theology and Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible and Archaeology at William Jessup University. Cynthia did her PhD at the University of Sheffield in the UK. She's an experienced field archaeologist in Israel and is currently part of an archaeological excavation team at Tel Halif in Israel. And I'm sure we'll hear a bit about that. She's the editor of the Five-Minute Archaeologist in the Southern Levant, which is a user-friendly exploration of basic concepts within archaeology and the techniques and methods used by archaeologists in the field. She's also written Food in Ancient Judah, Domestic Cooking in the Time of the Hebrew Bible. So, Cynthia, thanks for joining OnScript. Thanks for having me. So, have you always had uh, an interest in the study of the past history, archaeology? Yeah, I have. I, um, I've always loved history. In fact, I was never really any good at school as a kid, but I loved history and I loved reading my Bible. I mean, I grew up in a a Christian home, and so I loved reading my Bible, but um, I was always fascinated more by the Old Testament, (laughs) and always... Let's hear it for the Old Testament. Yeah, you know, um, but, um, 
yeah, I just loved it. And when I went to college and I started taking classes on it and I went to Israel for the first time and in college and did a, a dig for a day, it, it just, it, I, archaeology never even really entered my mind as far as something that I'd be interested in. Um, until that trip, I was what nineteen, because there there was something about the archaeology that was history that you could see, that you could touch, uh, a very physical way of holding history in your hands, and that really resonated with me. Hmm. And so, what what uh, what college were you at then? Uh, I was at Simpson College, now Simpson uh, University. Did in you do Reading. a semester abroad, or was it a trip abroad, or what was the? It was a you know historical geography class with yeah. one of my professors for the summer. We did um, Israel and Egypt, and we went to all the historical, religious, and archaeological sites. And we had the dig for a day, and we were at the caves of Moresha, which we found nothing except maybe some bone, you know, animal bones, but. Which is why, which is weird. Why I wonder why, how, what about that? Even though we found nothing, resonated with me, but something did. Yeah, so. it was there, there was an electric buzz in the air <laughs> that like we might find something. <laughs> right. That's part of it, right? Yeah, the allure yeah, maybe. of that. Yeah, it's funny. I did a um, a one day dig that prompted my interest. You know, the Temple Mount sifting yeah, project. Right. So when I was. Um, in Israel in 2011, that was the first time I'd done any digging of any kind, and it was really sifting mm-hmm, the, right. the stuff from the Temple Mount, yeah. but that was really fun. Yeah. Sifting can be really tedious in some ways, yeah. but then when you are finding things and you think, oh, you wouldn't have found that if you hadn't sifted that. Right. More than likely. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, we were finding bits of, uh, you know, columns from the Temple Mount because they were slightly rounded and he knew they were part of a column yeah, of some kind yeah. and um, animal uh, teeth mm-hmm. and it's pretty cool to find a sheep tooth up there and yeah. know that this is a sheep tooth from the Temple Mount. You yeah. Know, it's like, so yeah, it was, uh, it was exciting and um, very formative. In fact, my son was, he was one at the time and he was sifting with us. So oh, he's, really? he started quite early. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, he that's tried to cool. sift. <laughs> he tried. Yeah. So, you, so you've always had this kind of Bible and archaeology interest. Or, I mean, yeah. It, in college, the archaeology part came into it. Um, yeah, and I, I just kept pursuing it. I had never, it never entered my mind to continue the academic route. You know, I just was like, wow, I really like this, and I want to keep studying it, and. I guess if I want to keep studying it, I should keep, you know, working on degrees and what do I want to do with it? And I thought, oh, well, I'll teach and um, didn't realize that that's more difficult than (laughs) getting into that point is much more difficult. But I thought, okay, if I want to do this, then I'll just keep going that direction. And and where are some of the places that you've dug? Yeah, I've dug at quite a few a few places now. Um, so I started out when I was working on my master's. I was um, working at Tel Rehov, um, which was directed by Ami Mazar of Hebrew University. Yeah, so really fantastic dig, um, and really kind of at the time the at the center of that whole high low chronology debate right. between okay. Ami and Israel Finkelstein. Okay, could you give like a one minute um, explanation of that? Because most people sure, won't know that. yeah. So the and you know that's that's going to be hard to do. Um, so um, <laughs> people debate stuff. They debate stuff endlessly. <laughs> 
Um, but the idea being, um, and it was kind of also at the this heart of the so-called minimalist and maximalist debate. What really, you know, what is the is the is the Hebrew Bible historically reliable? And and that brought up these questions about okay, are, is the dating that we've given to certain um, strata is that right or wrong? And is it earlier or later, or is it just right? Because it was really dependent upon the biblical text. And so this was at a time when a lot of archaeologists were saying, no, just don't even bother with the biblical text, because it it was almost a reaction against people digging with the Bible in one hand and the trowel in the other and making the archaeological data fit the biblical narrative. But then you get into the whole biblical studies historical critical methods and looking at the historical reliability of the text. And so that brought archaeologists wondering, okay, we really have this, are these dates right? And so Israel Finkelstein would argue that, no, they're they're not right. They're off by what, like they're, 80 years yeah, or something? Yeah, they're off, mm-hmm. which um, kind of put then is like a snowball effect. Okay, well, what does that mean for what the reigns of David and Solomon actually looked like. And of course, some scholars would then say, well, were there really reigns of these people? And where's the extra historical anchors for those things outside of the biblical text? So it really just kind of reached out into so many different areas. And uh, Rehov was being excavated. Um, and I, if I recall correctly, it wasn't excavated um, before Ami started digging there. And um, really clear, like, ninth century stratigraphy um, and ninth century layers, um, and which kind of ended up being in the heart of this historical reliability chronology debate. Got it. Yeah. yeah. And, that's and probably not a very good explanation. No, no, that's good. And so has it, has that been resolved or where, what, oh, where, no. where no, but I they've mean, just kind of, it's just a detente. Well, I think what was great about Ami is that Ami, Ami could see, you know, the, the good, you know, valuable parts of all the different arguments and and he even modified his chronology a bit based on it um and so um i think there's been kind of like a a a truce (laughs) but nothing of course has been yeah decided yeah because but there'd be not much to argue about what stuff you dig up doesn't have dates on it and and then getting some sort of absolute anchor to to hang other events right. on or other unless you um, were at depending on what time period you're in a coin or a scarab or an inscription of some sort but those absolute dating um artifacts you know are are, are uncommon yeah and and then so you went from tell Rehov. what was your next site right you so um when at? i went to Rehov, we um so where is that by the way so it is in the um, the Jordan Valley. Uh, it's not far from Beit Shan. Okay, yeah. so like uh, south of the Sea Galley, right? Uh, south by, of the Sea Galley, like about half an hour. Yes, yeah, so yeah, at most okay. a half hour right. drive. Um, not, yeah, right in the heart of that that whole Beit Shan agricultural area. Um, so when I went to um, Rehov, we started um, digging every other year after that, and so Ami's cousin, Elot Mazar, was um, going to be digging um, a site called Akziv, and it was just going to be a one summer thing because she had excavated that 
at Oxy when she was um, earlier, and she they on the very last day, as is like the Murphy's Law of archaeology, you always find the best things on the last day, <laughs> and they found this tomb, the small tomb that hadn't been um, looted. Huh. And so, wow. in order to stop it from being, they they couldn't do anything with it in the last day or so that they had. So they had to keep it quiet. So they had to keep it quiet, and they covered it back up, and they swore they'd come back the next year. Eight years later, they came back. I think it was eight years, and she asked Ami if she could borrow some of his people, and I was one of those people. So it got oh, wow. to go. So you, you were there when they they opened mm-hmm. the tomb again, mm-hmm. and then. Yeah, it, in fact, I was the reg- I was read the registrar for the tomb, and um, wow, which means you're marking down everything that's yeah, found. Yeah, everything. So I was in charge of all the stuff coming out, and we ended up having Is that Iron uh, Age tomb or what? Yeah, Iron yeah. Age Phoenician tomb um, that hadn't been looted. It was a small tomb, you could fit about three people in there, um, mm-hmm. and just comfortably. No. <laughs> Very uncomfortably. We had Uh to take our shoes off, which you never dig without shoes. So this wasn't like a regular dig where you're using big tools. This was what we call a dental tool dig where you get the dental tools out in the soft, you know, fine brushes. And um, and we were right on the Mediterranean. It was beautiful. Um, It was also the summer after 9-11. So there were hardly any excavations going on. Um, But it, it really spoiled you for doing any kind of tell archaeology. <laughs> but um, so from there, that was just the one summer. I went back to Rehove, was there for a while. And then um, after when I moved to England for my PhD, um, my supervisor took students to Tel Asafi, which is biblical Gath, and um, asked me to take over t- teaching that class for her. So um, I started taking the Sheffield students over to Gath. Uh, and, and that's directed by Aaron Mayer of Bar Ilan University, another fantastic dig. Um, and then... So you've um, worked with some really uh, great people then. Yeah. And then after my dissertation came out, one of the sites I looked at was Tel Halif, which is now run by Oded Borowski of Emory University. And they were going to restart the excavations. And he asked me if I'd like to be part of that team. And so did that. But then this last summer, I was at um, Abel Beit Maka up north. Yeah, with um, Nava Panitz-Cohen and Bob Mullins and Nava Nama Yoham Mak. And um, yeah, it was great. Wow. Was, and and so... Which who I dug with at Raho. They were on okay. my Raho team. So it was like I was okay. digging with really old, old friends. Great. It was and does great. it still have the same thrill to it? Or does it feel like work when you go over there? I mean, no, I mean it, it is work, obviously, but mm-hmm. it's it's still... It's work. Exciting. Yeah. I mean, I don't like getting up at four in the morning, <laughs> but who does? Um, it is, but at the same time, you don't know what, um, what you're going to find. You know, there's no, and I tell my students that because I take students and teach them how to dig and how archaeology helps us understand, hopefully, you know, ancient Israel and hopefully the biblical text better. And just like you don't know what's under there. And, and that's exactly what happened this summer. One of my areas was um, a dirt swimming pool. It was nothing. You know, maybe some broken pieces of pottery, but no features, no significant, you know, artifacts, anything. And then my area right next to it had a beautiful, um, like a 
granary and three remain remains of three ovens and mm. just wonderful which set. is right up your alley it so, is, I know. so you're um <laughs> you're really interested in ordinary life in ancient israel yeah daily so, life yeah daily life mm-hmm. in ancient israel um so for a lot of people are, I, I guess there's always this tension with archaeological funding and things like that where right having a big find is mm-hmm. gives you a nice media splash and it does and that kind of gives attention you more money it, yeah. to do more digging but uh-huh. that's not really what you're what archaeologists are interested in right well i think i mean you want the big stuff too but yeah i mean if if you ran across i don't know name an any, archive yeah archive <laughs> or any spectacular sure you know, artifact, you know, people always ask, oh, the Ark of the Covenant. Like, well, no, (laughs) we don't have that. But, um, I mean, you wouldn't say no to that, but at this, I guess it depends on what your research agenda is. Um, And on any dig, there's all sorts of things that are being uncovered and bringing up new questions and hopefully adding to the answers of some other questions. So even at a site that's a formal a city that's got formal fortifications, like a, a city wall around it. Um, you may be trying to find the city gate, or maybe as as where I was in Abel, we I was in the the area A that has the big um, cultic complex. Um, but at that cultic complex, you know, my area had this agricultural, you know, stuff uh, features, which is really quite interesting. So. Yeah, you take what you can get, but at the same time, you hope to, it will help with your own research too. So when you're looking at um, daily life in ancient Israel, what what are some of the things that you're interested in? What gets you excited when mm-hmm. you're... Um, I particularly like digging um, houses. So at Halif, one of the things that drew me to it is that uh, we were doing household archaeology where we were um, uncovering... Um, a row of 8th century pillared houses. Mm, so which king was that time so of? So 8th century would be Hezekiah. This is, so Halif was one of the 46 towns destroyed by King Sennacherib of the Neo-Syrian Empire in 701. So that's roughly the time of King Hezekiah of Judah and Isaiah the prophet. And um, so we're uncovering these rows of houses and not just the house, but, you know, the artifacts and, and doing what we call a spatial analysis, which is trying to understand, okay, most, cause a lot of times on digs you say, oh, I found eight cooking pots and maybe three storage jars. So they're really published and categorized by type. Uh, whereas in a spatial analysis, you're really concerned about the location of the find spot of the artifacts and and not just their find spot, but their find spot in relation to the building, to the features of the building and to yeah, other artifacts. Other houses, and other houses too, right? Yeah, yeah and other houses too. So if you're in a house where you say, okay, I found in this one space, there's an oven and there's a cooking pot next to the oven and there's some carbonized grains and you're, they're all right next to each other. You can say, all right, well, clearly this area was used, the activity which that was conducted in this area was, was food preparation. But then you could say, but also not only was that stuff there, but not far from that against a wall, and this was happened at my house at Halif, there's a nice row of loom weights 
where the loom would have once been, where they were weaving, and was right next to the food preparation area. So it's not just Don't saying... Don't spill on the yeah, stuff we're <laughs> weaving. Right. So it's not just the types and, and, but, and where, but the where and where they're related to each other and their, their potential activity areas that that could um, reflect. Yeah, so that was interesting in, in a, a paper of yours I read, mm. which is that the way we think about rooms in a house, we, we kind of have to put some of that aside when we think right. about an ancient Israelite house. So what are some of the assumptions that we might bring to a house that we need to get mm. rid of? I think when we think of our own homes today, we think about, and of course it depends on what kind of home you have, but it's not uncommon for people to have a dining room. Or a office. Yeah, or more made, limited use places. Right, a room that might have a singular function. Maybe you have a man cave, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But if we, if, so we're used to thinking of, of space in like singularity terms, whereas I think in most ancient societies, whether it's Israel or not, your your domestic space would have been very much more utilitarian, where you would have been using it for a variety of activities, not just, oh, hey, we're only going to do this and this. We have limited space, but no, you can't do this in there because we only use this room for that. And then are they rolling out mats and sleeping in that room at the end of the day? Right. Well, we think that the houses had um, two stories, uh, and of course, when we excavate the houses, we only have what remains of the first floor. We don't get the second floor unless it's collapsed onto the first floor. Um, so what we think is that there were two floors and that the bottom floor um, would have been, because I think when we think of houses, we tend to think of today, again, kind of going into those assumptions, and I'll circle back to that question, um, is is that it, it's just where we we live and sleep and we go out to work elsewhere. Whereas in most, even traditional societies today, but in ancient traditional societies, you would, your home was your workplace. You didn't really go out to, not many people at least, especially in earlier days, wouldn't have gone out to a job. So when we think about your household space and how it was used, um, it's, thought that maybe the first floor functioned as a lot of like where your daily activities would take place and also it depend on the season so if you're if it's israel is very much like california where we are today and where i'm from um you know there was most houses it seems had some sort of what a lot of scholars call courtyard, but actually more accurately like a forecourt so an open workspace in the front of the house which was often shared with maybe other houses right around you, which would have probably also been people you were related to. Um, and so your bottom level of your house, whether it's inside or outside, would have been used for you know, daily activities. And it's thought that maybe the second floor would have been used for... Um, Basketball. S- <laughs> sleeping quarters oh. and stuff. And, um, 
and maybe some other light household chores, mm-hmm. you know, but then the flat roof of the house too would have also yeah. been used. So everything was used. Yeah, everything's multi-use. And mm-hmm. Yeah, quite small too. I mean, they're not yeah, very... Yeah, they're, they're not very they, big. On average, aren't, aren't big homes. Right, and if you think about how many people could yeah. have lived in those homes, that would have... Yeah. Not a lot of privacy and <laughs> personal space. So, Cynthia, are you ready for a speed round? I think so. Okay, so the idea is just... Um, I'll give you like, uh, you know, five seconds, five to 10 seconds to answer just off the cuff. No deep thought about them. Okay. Um, what is your, who is your favorite archaeologist? My favorite archaeologist. Oh, that's a really good question. But there's a number of people I would probably offend. <laughs> um well, um, you know, I'm going to have to say the dig director of my first excavation uh, would be Ami Mazar. Uh, and he, so that was the Tel Rehov excavation that um, I was a master's student on and that I was trained at. And Ami uh, is really well known and well respected in the archaeological community as just a, a very just nice person and a very good archaeologist, very level-headed, very able to see, you know, all sides of the issues. So I would, I'd have to say he's my favorite. And do you have any other scholarly heroes? So not necessarily only archaeology, but perhaps broader biblical studies or beyond? Yeah, I, um, within biblical studies and archaeology, someone who really had a great impact on my uh, education and um, just research areas would be Carol Myers. And um, she's still, you know, her work today is still, you know, fantastic and actually have the wonderful opportunity to be working with her and another colleague on a project. So that's kind of surreal. You oh, know, wow. Kinda, that's good. Yeah. Uh, are you, so that's are you good. able to say what that project is? Yeah, actually, uh, absolutely. Um, so Carol and myself and my colleague, Jan Ling Fu, are co-editing the TNT Clark Handbook of Food in the Hebrew Bible in Ancient Israel. Oh, fantastic. And I, yeah, I want to come back to Carol Myers um, to talk about gender and archaeology later. So let's, let's put a pin in that one. Um, the most significant archaeological find for biblical studies in the, in the last 10 years. The last 10 years. Hmm. Well... I would say the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that was more than yeah. <laughs> 10 years ago. Um, the most important, geez, that's a really good question. Um, I can't say that there's been one thing that has stuck out as super important. I mean, important on the level of the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Tel Dan uh, inscription. Um I know, geez, that's a really good question. Uh, it's lightning round. I'm supposed to be quick about this, and I can't be quick about it. Um, again, back to Rehov, the the apiaries that were found in 2005 and 2007, the okay. couple hundred apiaries that were found from the uh-huh. leave ninth. So this is, yeah, I think it was, and what's an apiary? Apiary is a beehive. Okay. And why yeah. is that? Why is that so significant? Because up until then, um, there was no archaeological evidence of uh, at least industrial-sized beekeeping, 
And so when people read about Israel being a land of milk and honey, a lot of scholars, because of this lack of evidence of beekeeping, thought that the the honey that's mentioned in that idiom was actually more of a syrup made from pressed fruit, like uh, dates and figs. And so it was during that excavation, though, that uh, the apiaries were found and um, you know, thus proving, yes, there was in beekeeping in ancient Israel. Okay, if you could plunge your shovel and trowel into one unexcavated tell, which would it be? Jeez, I don't know. I, I can't think. I mean, so many sites have been excavated. Um, I are, are there don't a lot re- that, like, you know, people look at and are like, you know, we'd love to get funding to excavate there, but we just can't? Yeah, you know, and it, there's not a lot to my knowledge, and, and I'm not very knowledgeable on, on that as far as, you know, what tells small, uh, especially ones that have, haven't been excavated. Um, but the Tel Abel Beit Ma'aka excavation uh, way up north in northern Israel, um, that hadn't been excavated until, um, I think there was a survey, but it hadn't been, you know, part of an excavation project until somewhat recently, like eight years ago, the excavations started there under um, Nava Panitz-Cohen and uh, Nama Mak from Hebrew University and Bob Mullins from Azusa Pacific University. Okay. And you're digging there, right? I did, yeah. You I, did dig yeah, there. Yeah, I, okay. I was there this last summer, and hopefully I'll be there again this summer. And then where are you originally from? For me, I'm from Southern California originally, and then I moved up to Northern California when I was in high school. So I'm just a California gal. So um, in, in what town in Northern California? Uh, I'm in Auburn. Okay. So do mm-hmm. you have a favorite hometown restaurant? I do. It's called Joe Caribe's. Okay. And what do they serve there that we all need to go eat? It's a wonderful place. It's a, um, it's this really interesting fusion of Indian, uh, Caribbean, uh, Tex-Mex, Asian. It's just this real eclectic place. And my favorite thing to get there is their chicken curry burrito. Okay. I've never it's heard really all of those good. things brought together, so it, it sounds it's, very it, interesting. It is really interesting. You know, when my wife and I were on, uh, we did a, a month-long road trip, and we stopped in Northern California in a little town, and we, our, our approach was to go to churches or anyone we saw and ask if we could put our tent up in the, the kind of churchyard or something, and... Uh, I remember we stopped at a, a place that was called Willow Creek, and it was like this little church, probably of about fifty people or less, and um, and we had uh, we had caught or we harvested mussels from the ocean, and thought it was going to be really cool to cook our own mussels, and they tasted awful. Um, anyway, that's my when you talked about food in Northern California. Uh, I've got a bad taste in my mouth, so I need to go back and and it's my it's my own doing, uh, but need to try that. Okay, would you choose beer, wine, mead, port, or sherry? Wine. Okay. Yeah, White that or was red? a quick one. Red. Okay. 
So, when people hear that you study food in the Bible, do they A, try to send you Ezekiel bread recipes, B, try to convince you of the nutritional benefits of the Daniel diet, C, try to convince you that the alcohol per unit in wine was vastly different than it is today when it, in the Bible, D, all of the above, or E, other? D, all of the above. Okay, you've gotten all those. Yeah, I have. Yeah, and and do you subscribe to the 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 benef- nutritional benefits of the Daniel diet? Well, I mean, vegetarian diet is usually a pretty good diet. No, but I mean like the 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 kind where they're like, you know, we got to really be biblical about it. I don't know how you would do that. Yeah, but. I don't I don't know when when people try to commercialize biblical stuff, it just it never goes well. <laughs> so, you know, the whole Daniel diet or the Jesus diet or you know, it's just I I re- that stuff really puts me off. Yeah, but you're never going to get wealthy with that mindset. I know. You, I think you need to. I, know. <laughs> I think I think you need a wealth mindset, um, and, and and maybe this is going to be the spur to get you out of your yeah, current mindset maybe. toward a toward a wealth mindset. Yeah, maybe I should do a, um, you know, a, a what would the ancient Israelites cook cookbook? Yeah, it has to have the word secret in the title. The secret oh, Israelite you're right. cookbook. The secret Israelite cookbook. Yep. There you go. On sale now. Pre-order. <laughs> okay. I mean, you could you could create a cover and have it on Amazon tonight, and then get, get pre-orders, and then write the thing based on how many pre-orders you get. Okay, you know, what's one idea, idea? What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? One idea in biblical studies that I think needs to die. Uh, improper biblical studies, or like take it where you want. Okay, uh, within like actual biblical studies, it needs to die. Um, it kind of already has died, and I'm kind of glad. Hopefully, I'm, it is dead, or and, and not necessarily dead, but um, it, you know, it, hopefully, it's run its course. Is that is the so-called minimalist maximalist debate that you saw in the '90s and early 2000s, and um. Yeah, it just it it's. I understand the conversation. I understand you know, it's an important conversation to have. But the the lengths that it went to, as far as the name calling and the and the category and putting lumping people into different categories, was um, I was just so childish to me. Yeah. And, yeah. Have things kind of landed in the middle, or is it just that's not the debate right now? You know, probably a little of both. Um, I don't think it's a, a huge conversation piece within these fields right now, uh, which I'm I'm glad because I mean both sides had some really valuable points. Um, you know, and like most things, it's it's not a either or. It doesn't have to be, you know, extremes on either end or an either or. It could be both and, and maybe there's you know, a third or fourth or fifth option. Okay. What's one? Oh no, I just asked that. Uh, what's the, <laughs> any other ideas? Okay. The most significant book in biblical studies or ancient Israelite history, archeology span in the last 50 years. Hmm. The most significant. 
Well, see, you could still really easily offend people. <laughs> Everyone thinks that their stuff is really significant. Um, well, let me look at my bookshelf behind me. Uh, She's reaching could, for her I, book. <laughs> I could be, I was going to say, I could be really um, selfish and say, oh, my own work. Uh, but no, that wouldn't be the case. Um you know, I, I'd probably, for me personally, I, um, and maybe not just in the scholarly community, but yes, in the scholarly community, but probably more for me personally would, would have been Discovering Eve. Um, you know, and that was in the 80s. Um, the Carol Myers? That was in the 80s. Yeah, I have to check, check their original publication. Oh, late 90s or something like that. Okay. Um, it yeah, fits within just, the time frame. Yeah, just because... Um, you know, I was a master's student, and I loved archaeology. I loved biblical studies, and I loved gender studies. But I hadn't really um, investigated too much at that point to see how all three of them could intersect in a way, because I was always really interested in, in the daily life stuff, too. So how could those four things work together as as a research field and um, and so when my advisor at the time uh, David Baker suggested I read Discovering Eve um, that was very eye-opening for me because because that's exactly what she does is she does biblical studies Hebrew Bible archaeology women daily life and it all of those things mixed up together showed me that yes you can do all of these things together it doesn't have to be one or the other right all right we're going to get to that in a moment um but i want okay. to do you have christmas crackers in, in the states i, I say it as we, if like i'm not american as well um but i've just <laughs> been living mean, i've been yeah. living in the uk and in europe for almost 10 years so i, I just forget what's what's around were, were those things where they pop yeah, yeah. Okay. I did my PhD studies in England, so oh, yeah, I know course. exactly what yeah, you, you mean. You know them. Um, um, but so you, you do see them now. Maybe not as, um, I mean, I was in Safeway last weekend and I saw them at uh -huh. the grocery store. Made their way over. Um, yeah, and you can, the world market, I think, has had them, Cost Plus World Market has had them for quite some time. But you're starting to see them in less specialty type places Okay, like so that Safeway, leads me the into store, the, or, yeah, I, the, so they're they're here. So that leads me into a joke that I got out of my recent uh, recent Christmas cracker that I I popped at a work party. So why should you never invite a team of footballers for Christmas? Now, footballers, soccer players, right? For our listeners, why? Why? Because they are always dribbling. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. All right, You're what seven-letter word has hundreds of letters in it? A seven-letter word has hundreds of letters in it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. A letter box. A post box. <laughs> Sorry, post box. <laughs> yeah, mailbox. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's also seven letters. And let's let's transition to talk about gender and, and archaeology Um I know we're, we're running short on time, but I, I want to just touch on that because you've mentioned Carol Meyer's work and it seems to intersect with your um, some of the work that you've done on household archaeology. And uh, I don't know, have you seen the, there's a recent book called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez? I have not. Okay. 
Um, in the intro, she wrote something that that caught my attention because I knew I was going to be talking to you. And she recounts a story from 1966 at the University of Chicago. There was a symposium on primitive hunter-gatherer societies. And this this uh, meeting was called Man the Hunter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I've heard so of it, yeah. You've heard about this? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've heard about the Man the Hunter. But okay. I... So there's 75 anthropologists uh, from around the world, and they're debating the centrality of um, of hunting to human evolution and development. And then the consensus out of this, and she quotes, the biology, psychology, and customs that separate us from the apes, all these we owe to the hunters of time past. Um, and then that was kind of the one of the published results. And then she, she talks about a, a 1975 essay uh, by Sally Slocum called Woman the Gatherer. And then she challenged the primacy of man, the hunter. And she said, anthropologists, quote, search for examples of the behavior of males and assume that this is sufficient for explanation. And then she asked a simple question, what were females doing while the males were out hunting? And then she goes on to talk about what women were doing and then how that changes our thinking about evolutionary biology and so on. Um, and I, I bring that up to just highlight the, the, the ways that a male bias factored in anthropology. What are some of the ways that it factors in archaeology? Yeah, um, and that's been talked about by a number of female scholars and archaeologists, so I'll just pick up from what they've said is, and would highlight that too, is that you know historically we have focused on through in archaeology and within biblical studies we focused on monumental places, people, events, or um, or what others have said like places of prestige, uh, and and that could be you know the palaces, the temples. The city walls, the battlefields, the priests, the kings, the commanders of the armies, you know, the soldiers, all of those things that are big monumental people, places, and events that very rarely reflect um, not only what women were doing, but oftentimes just your average person, your average man, woman, or child, not even just the women, um, because those are places of prestige where your average person um, is rarely going to be interacting in that uh, context unless like, they are a soldier as part of a battle or something. Um, so our, our very interests historically in these places of prestige and these monumental places um, ref- has reflected a very um, male-centered, and not just male-centered, but elite male-centered, um, elite urban male-centered uh, focus of our, of our scholarship. So what gender archaeology has done, and household archaeology as well, and has has shifted that focus from the monumental to the mundane, you know, to uh, the places and the people and the daily activities, you know, that the activities that occur 
on a daily basis by your average men, women, and children, um, which may not seem as glamorous or as sexy or as fun to study, but um, if we truly want to understand ancient Israel and ancient Judah better, we need to shift our focus from the monumental to the mundane. And the mundane, the stage of where daily life occurred would be the home. And the mundane can be pretty interesting, though. So, what are what are some of the so. what are some of the ways that looking at the mundane has begun to reshape how we understand ancient Israel? Right. So, even uh, looking at daily food preparation practices uh, and what that would have looked like. Um, and of course, that means using archaeology. That means using uh, textual material, including biblical texts and other ancient Near Eastern texts. Includes iconography, ethnoarchaeology. You know, all of these things at our disposal that we want to try to use to help us understand uh, ancient Israel better. And looking at food preparation uh, practices uh, has really opened our eyes to. Um, the role of women and the um, control and authority and power, especially like a matriarch of a household, would have had over your food preparation, uh, deciding what f- you know what of the the harvest is going to be stored, what of the harvest is going to be um, distributed as far as uh, trade or or maybe um, what's going to be prepared into what products, what's going to be made into a meal, how much of that's going to be used, who gets to eat, who gets, how much do they get to eat, when do they get to eat. I mean, that's a lot of power, <laughs> whoever is in control of the food. And it seems like from all of these different types of sources, from a variety of different research by different people, it seems like uh, women, in particular the matriarch of the household, uh, was in charge of that. So when we talk about women not having any um, you know, power uh, within her world, I think we are looking at it, of course, from our 21st century perspective on what consists of power as opposed to looking at trying to put ourselves in their cultural context and what that could have looked like for them of course that's going to look it could be very different than ours Um, but at the same time I think there is there are clues to where we have been you know, ignoring these very valuable people within um, a household that would have had um, strong uh, implications to how ancient Israel, Israelite and Judite households functioned. Yeah, and I can imagine that each term that you use in a discussion about food preparation or household needs defining or redefining because of the assumptions that we bring to those things. Because if when I think of food preparation, I might think of grocery store to table, but that's missing 90% of the process. Um, and and when we talk about household, you know, that's, I might think of a, a family that's on its own in a house, uh, but that's not what it was. And And so all of these places and processes need redefining. And as 
you do that and, and your work is so helpful in that and people like Carol Myers, uh, it, it really just changes your perception of the power and role of women and their relationship, their kind of working relationship with men. Yeah, right. And that, you know, and, and it's interesting because um, one of the classes, I'll connect this together, I promise. One of the classes I teach here at Jessup and just finished teaching this semester is a women in scripture course. And um, and it, it's interesting, these conversations that are these um, students want to have is, you know, okay, because it's not only women in scripture, both, you know, Hebrew Bible, Deuterocanonical, New Testament, but then also at the end of the semester and all through the semester, really talking, because Jessup is a, you know, is a, is a, uh, is a Protestant school, um, looking at, okay, well, the so what question, you know, so what does that mean for us today? Uh, and what does that mean for you know women in the church and leadership in the church and all this stuff and and one of the questions that you know that the think discussion topics that kept coming up is okay well what what is women's roles and and people always using the biblical text to say well a biblical worldview of gender roles is that the man you know is is the provider and he goes and does all the work and the woman stays home and takes care of the children. And one, when we take, you know, real research of the biblical world into consideration, you have to say, well, you're, what you are saying is a biblical view, worldview of, of let's say gender roles it is wrong um, because you're, average ancient Israelite man, woman, and child, everyone worked at home. <laughs> Nobody left to go, ha- you know, it wasn't like a normal thing for people to leave and have a job. Everyone in the household was imperative for the survival of the household, regardless of your age, regardless of your sex, regardless of anything. Uh, every member was imperative and every member uh, participated in the survival, and and generally that participation happened within the dwelling and the surrounding farmland. Yeah, and also I would imagine too that's it's really helpful to to think through this. Um, and I, I would imagine as well it changes when you think about the technological skills that women had as well. That food preparation is it just requires a, a high high level of skill in quite a number of areas. Um, and we're just talking about food, right? <laughs> and and think al- about it too. If men go off to war, you know, then daily life doesn't stop. The fields still need to be harvested or planted. You still need to make food. You still need to get water. You still need to make your clothes. Nothing gets put on pause. And so it was left to the people who were left in the household, which would have been primarily the children, uh, maybe the so-called elderly, <laughs> and and the women, the women of the household. So, if, if there was a war and they were and the able-bodied men of the family were household were gone, then everything was put on her shoulders. Yeah, and you think about how even in the modern context, war reshaped gender. The, the way that women were involved in the workforce, uh, at least in the States and in Britain. Um, and if war was not that uncommon, 
then women are always going to have to know how to cover for their the men in their families. Yeah, that's fascinating. So um, your, your course on women and gender, did you have like a main textbook for that? I'm just curious. Yeah, um, that's the second time I've taught it. Um, so I'm still looking for um, a really good New Testament book, but um, I've used um, Bellis's Helpmates, Harlots and Heroes for women in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and then, of course, Carol Newsom's um, commentary uh, on women in Scripture. Um, and then the New Testament one this year, I used uh, Lynn Coick's book. Uh, but that was more, on, ended up being more on, like, the New Testament world, which is, you know, very fascinating. Um, but I am looking for something that's kind of like the Bellis book, but... Uh, for for New Testament. So if any of your listeners have any ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my uh, my colleague and, and boss, Lucy Pepe, just wrote a book on women in scripture with IVP. And that's a, oh, that's a really good okay. one. That just yeah, came out this autumn. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the ways that your study of material culture impacts your faith? Yeah. Um, you know, for me as as somebody who who loves history and being able to excavate that history it's history that i can i can see and i can touch and that you know these for for me the it's the the story behind the artifacts right i love the artifacts i love the material culture i love the architecture the features i love it all but what gets me is whenever i think about the stories behind them and i think about okay yeah you've got these biblical narratives and of course you've had that discussion with people on on using archaeology in the bible and all that stuff but um regardless of you know how you feel about that when you're excavating it you can't help but think about oh yeah i remember this narrative from the Hebrew Bible or this narrative from the New Testament and and having archaeology help us understand the biblical world better which then of course is going to help us understand the Bible better and if you come from a a faith background or if you're on a faith journey of course that can't help but to impact um, your own faith uh, and of course, it's going to be different for different people. But for me, being part of that um, is truly a, a privilege and an honor. And I, I think about, okay, if I'm under, if I'm helping understand the biblical world better, maybe this is going to help somebody else understand the Bible and its world better. And and using everything at our disposable can help only help us understand the biblical text better, which if we allow the text to speak for itself, allow archaeology to speak for itself, and see if they help each other at all, then that's fantastic. And and how then and then what do I do with that with the so what question? You know, you always have to ask that so what question. Um, you know, well, at least for, for those of us that, that like those kind of questions. 
<laughs> but you know that so what question what does that do for for me and my faith and um you know i'm i'm at a place where i'm i am i the more i learn the more i am okay with knowing that i don't know everything and sometimes there's not answers for everything um and i have become more comfortable being in that that place of wonderment and being in that place of of just kind of awe and being okay with not having all the answers you know and and that's and whether that's with archaeology or biblical studies or my own faith journey um I'm 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 finally at I feel like I'm finally at a place where I'm like okay yeah I have these questions and I may not find the answers right now or maybe what I think is a good answer might change I don't know but I'm okay with that um and so there's something about finding the tangible that is making the untangible really okay that's a great place to uh, bring this to a conclusion. So, Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us at OnScript. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.